I'm Dr. Jeff Donovan, and you're listening to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. This is Season 3, Episode 7. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast for practitioners around the world who care for patients with hair loss. For those of you who simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will also be of interest. Each week I review a handful of research studies that are changing how we think about hair loss. I'll introduce them to you, help you digest them, and give you my thoughts on how a given study just might change how we diagnose or treat hair loss. Studies in androgenetic hair loss, alopecia areata, telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, trichotillomania, scarring and non-scarring alopecia. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy. It was created for both the new practitioner as well as the seasoned expert. It was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The fourth Monday of each month is dedicated to a variety of research studies, and we'll look today at seven research studies from the last few months. We'll begin by a very nice case report of iron pill gastritis. Iron supplementation is key for all hair specialists to know about. Iron pills sometimes cause upset stomach, they can cause constipation, diarrhea, black stools, but sometimes they can cause gastritis. And we'll take a look at a very interesting study which reminds us that when our patients say to us, it kind of hurts when I take my iron pills, the answer is not, do your best, keep going. The answer might be, let's find some strategies so you don't have that pain. Then we'll look at a very nice study from New Delhi looking at the benefits of horizontal sectioning on scalp biopsy versus vertical sectioning. There's been a lot of debate over the last few years as to whether horizontal sections are better than vertical or vertical are just as good. The jury is still out in terms of what is superior, but the overwhelming view is that they're both pretty similar. We'll take a look at a very nice study which supports the view that for scarring alopecia, horizontal sections and vertical sections are probably pretty similar, but for non-scarring hair loss, especially androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata, perhaps there are some distinct benefits of horizontal sections, which are also known as transverse sections. Then we'll take a look at a nice study of hives, or urticaria, after laser hair reduction. A side effect we don't talk about a lot, but a very nice report of just persisting hives in a patient undergoing laser hair removal. I introduced this to you out of interest, but for those of you who are performing laser hair removal, I think it's an area that is probably understudied, but a very interesting report here, nevertheless. Publication in the New England Journal highlighting nilotinib causing hair repigmentation. An individual with gray hair repigmenting his hair back to a darker brown color with the use of nilotinib. Nilotinib is a BCR-able tyrosine kinase inhibitor. We've talked about it on prior episodes as being a contributor to lichen planopilaris, rarely. Here we have another side effect. This one a good side effect, and that is hair repigmentation. And I'll introduce that study to you. We'll talk about seborrheic dermatitis, an absolutely incredible study suggesting that patients with seborrheic dermatitis are at increased risk for osteoporosis. 5% of the world has seborrheic dermatitis. 10 to 20% of the world has osteoporosis. So let's take a look at this very interesting study from Taiwan. And then we'll look at another very interesting study of seborrheic dermatitis and Parkinson's disease. We know that Certain groups, including Parkinson's disease, patients, patients with multiple sclerosis, patients with HIV are at increased risk for seborrheic dermatitis. We'll take a look at Parkinson's disease and how it relates to seborrheic dermatitis, and we'll see that the motor symptoms, the rigidity, the muscle-related symptoms tie in quite well with the increased risk of seborrheic dermatitis. And then we'll take a look at finasteride and how finasteride just might 
improve survival in males with bladder cancer. A relatively new study, which opens the door potentially to additional randomized studies in the oncology field. The references for all these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's begin then by talking about iron pill gastritis, a very nice study in Frontiers in Medicine, highlighting a side effect that I think we all need to know about as hair specialists. Iron pills are certainly very widely used. When the ferritin starts dipping down, we think maybe we should prescribe iron pills. Now, we probably prescribe iron pills too often. Some of us have this cutoff of 70, some of us have a cutoff of 50, some of us have a cutoff of 40. The reality is, is that there's not nearly as close of a link to hair shedding and telogen effluvium with iron as we like to think. So there's lots of people with ferritins of 30 and 40 that they don't need iron, but we feel that unless it's 40, we need iron. Certainly when ferritins drop down 20, 10, 8, there's pretty close connection to hair shedding. But nevertheless, we prescribe a lot of iron. And I think it's important we know about iron pills and side effects and how to counsel patients who are using iron. Iron tablets tend to be well tolerated. You need to be aware of side effects like nausea and vomiting, a metallic taste that patients might have, staining of teeth, black stools constipation, diarrhea. But a very nice study in Frontiers in Medicine highlights a side effect we don't talk about a lot, and that's iron pill gastritis. It's generally a side effect seen in elderly individuals, but here we have a case report of a 43-year-old woman developing gastritis or inflammation in the stomach. And so Koch and colleagues report this 43-year-old woman who had gastroesophageal reflux disease for quite a long time, or GERD, and she had heartburn, and she presented to the emergency department with intermittent melena or black stools, coffee ground emesis or vomiting, and she had weight loss, she couldn't eat, and she was known to have GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease. She wasn't taking any medications. She had iron deficiency anemia, and once she stabilized, she was advised to start taking iron as ferrous sulfate, 325 milligrams twice a day. And she started iron and went on to develop further gastrointestinal bleeding. She underwent endoscopy and had a gastric biopsy, and she was diagnosed with gastritis. The gastroenterologist ruled out other causes of gastritis, like Helicobacter pylori, and they took a biopsy and they showed classic findings of iron deposition and iron pill gastritis on histology of the stomach. The patient stopped her iron supplements. Her symptoms resolved. She was treated with a proton pump inhibitor, omeprazole, to suppress the acid, and she improved. And so this is a nice case of iron pill gastritis in a patient with pre-existing stomach and gastroesophageal disease, here GERD. And it's a reminder to us of this side effect that can occur in patients taking iron supplements. And so when patients say to us, I'm taking the iron you prescribed, hurting my stomach, our response really shouldn't be, well, do your best. Your ferritin was 14. We need it to 20 to stop your hair shedding. Just keep going. Take it with food. Do your best. Keep going. I know it hurts. Keep going. That's probably not the right answer. I think this study is a nice reminder that iron pills can sometimes harm the mucosal lining of the stomach. And a very nice study from 1988 by Lane and colleagues really highlights this concept in a wonderful manner. So Lane and colleagues published a study titled Effective Oral Iron Therapy on Upper Gastrointestinal Tract, a Perspective Evaluation. This was a wonderful study, which I'll just highlight to you briefly, of volunteers who took iron, and then they took biopsies of the stomach, they looked down the stomach, they did endoscopy, and they tried to figure out what happens 
in healthy volunteers when they take iron pills. So 14 participants in this 1988 study underwent baseline endoscopy with a biopsy of the stomach and duodenum, and they provided a stool sample. And then they were administered iron for two weeks, and then had repeat endoscopy and biopsy and stool collection. So these are really heroic volunteers. They're having endoscopy, they're having cameras and tubes put down the esophagus, and they're having biopsies. 13 participants then provided uh, also a pretreatment stool sample, and they were administered iron supplementation for one week, and then they gave a post-treatment stool sample too. So we had 14 participants with endoscopy, and then 13 other participants giving stool samples. Here's the key to that 1988 study. All participants developed dark stools post-treatment, and nausea and diarrhea were quite common. One patient had trace-positive hemocult testing, meaning they had bleeding from the GI tract. What was also interesting is that the authors noted that several volunteers had changes in the post-treatment endoscopy of the stomach. There was erythema and inflammation in the stomach, small areas of hemorrhage, and two patients had gastric erosions. This is a small group of people, but a significant proportion of those volunteers, healthy volunteers, no pre-existing disease, had inflammation in the stomach and erosions. And so the view nowadays is that iron supplements can cause mucosal injury in the stomach and erosions even in people that have a healthy GI system. And in those that have pre-existing disease, like GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, it can exacerbate the problem. It's not clear exactly how this mucosal injury comes about, but it's thought that iron is changed from the ferrous form to the ferric form, and this leads to epithelial injury and a chemical burn-like phenomenon in the stomach. And so in summary, this study in Frontiers in Medicine by Koch and colleagues reminds us that when patients have stomach pain with iron, let's work with them to develop strategies to improve the iron uh, administration protocol. That telling the patient to live through it, let's get your ferritin up to 20, is probably not the right way to go. That patients can develop mucosal injury in a short period of time. We know now over some, from some very good studies in the past few years that every other day iron administration, in other words, three times a week, can work just as well for many patients as everyday iron can. And we've reviewed that in prior episodes, but it's a really important point that many patients do just as well with taking it three times a week as every day. And we talked in the past that when you take iron every day, you get an increase in hepcidin levels and hepcidin blocks further absorption. And so by taking iron every day, it actually makes it more difficult for your body to bring in iron. And for those who can't tolerate iron pills, IV iron is fairly safe. And we talked in prior episodes that about 1 in 17,000 people have anaphylaxis. Maybe 3 or 4% have some very minor side effects with iron infusions. But severe anaphylaxis is a thing of the past. Iron used to be less safe with prior forms of iron in the years gone by, but nowadays with modern types of IV iron formulations, it's a lot safer, and 1 in 17,000 people have side effects of anaphylaxis, so a lot safer. So we move now to a discussion of transverse versus vertical sectioning on scalp biopsies. For those of you who aren't aware, when we take a scalp biopsy, we send it off to the lab, and the lab can cut that little cylinder, that little four millimeter cylinder in two ways. They can either cut it horizontally, or they can cut it vertically up and down. And if you imagine a loaf of bread, you can either cut that loaf of bread traditionally, which would be horizontally, or you can cut the bread vertically. And so when it comes to scalp biopsies, for years and years, vertical sectioning was the way that things went about, and then horizontal sectioning became much more common 
and in fact is a mainstay type protocol now for the evaluation of scalp biopsies. When you cut biopsies horizontally, you see all of the hair follicles on your microscope slide, and you can count the number of hair follicles, 28, 32. When you cut sections vertically, you only see a limited number of hair follicles, but you see the entire skin from top to bottom on vertical sections. So you see the epidermis, the dermis, the middermis, the sub-Q. There's distinct advantages with horizontal and vertical sectioning. But what's better? There's been a lot of debate in the literature, but the main concept has been that they're both valuable. Expert dermatopathologists will say, I'm an expert dermatopathologist. Give me a vertical section. I can tell you what's going on. Give me a horizontal section. I can tell you what's going on. But there is some view that horizontal sections really allow you to see all of the hair follicles at once. And they give you accurate assessment of hair counts. They give you accurate assessments of vellus hairs, antigen hairs, catagen hairs, proportions of things. And so there is some view that maybe horizontal sections are a little better for non-scarring alopecia. And so a new study from New Delhi suggests that, yeah, Maybe horizontal sections are a little better for non-scarring alopecia. So let's take a look at this study. The authors compared the benefits of horizontal and vertical sections in diagnosing scarring and non-scarring alopecia. So the author's study included 78 patients with hair loss. 43 had non-scarring hair loss. 35 had scarring hair loss. The mean age was 27.7 years. Male to female ratio was 1.4 to 1 and patients had hair loss for about 4.4 years. There was 43 patients with non-scarring alopecia, 25 with alopecia areata, 16 with androgenetic hair loss, one with chronic telogen effluvium, and one with trichotillomania. There was 35 patients with scarring alopecia that had biopsies, lichen planopilaris in 15, pseudopalata brock in 12, discoid lupus in 4, folliculitis decalvans in 3, and linear morphia in 1 and two dermatopathologists evaluated the slides. Let's take a look at the results in non-scarring alopecia, the accuracy, and then we'll turn to scarring alopecia. With non-scarring alopecia, the authors found that the diagnostic accuracy of horizontal sections was better than for vertical sectioning. For alopecia areata, 97.7% accuracy compared to 86% with vertical sections. And for androgenetic alopecia, accuracy 97.7 versus 81. And these were statistically significant. For scarring alopecia, these authors found that the accuracy was very similar. With vertical sections, LPP could be diagnosed with 100% accuracy. With transverse sections, it was 97%. No statistical difference between those two. And for pseudopalad, very similar results. But what the authors point out is that they had greater detail from the horizontal sections, and perhaps that greater detail allowed better diagnostic accuracy for non-scarring alopecia. They could see catagen and telogen hairs. They could see miniaturization easier. The authors found that 20% of alopecia areata couldn't be diagnosed with vertical sections. With vertical sections, what we often look at is the peribulbar inflammation. You have a vertical section slide. You look at the slide, your eye goes to the bottom of the slide, you look around the bulb, is there inflammation? And if there's inflammation around the bulb, you think to yourself, hey, I think this might be alopecia areata. It's something you learn early in residency in diagnosing alopecia areata. But there's subtle things that can be so helpful on horizontal sections. You can see an increased proportion of catagen and telogen hairs. You can see an increased proportion of miniaturization in alopecia areata. You can see eosinophils sometimes on vertical sections, but you can see them sometimes more readily in horizontal sections. Similarly, these authors point out that in androgenetic hair loss, miniaturization was missed in 44% of vertical sections and missed in just 6% of horizontal sections. So in androgenetic hair loss, 
when you cut a slide vertically, you have one, or one hair sometimes that's miniaturized on the slide. And your entire diagnosis rests on that capturing of that one hair in the biopsy. With horizontal sections, transverse sections, you see all the hairs. You see, hey, look at all the terminal thick hairs and look at all the little vellus hairs. The terminal to vellus hair ratio here is three to one. You just get so much more information. And that's the point the authors make. And I, I really like that analysis. So the authors propose here that horizontal and vertical sections are probably equally helpful for scarring alopecia, but horizontal sections are more helpful for non-scarring alopecia. This debate continues. I particularly like this study because I particularly am of the mindset that I like horizontal sections. And having worked with pathologists across the country that perform horizontal sections and vertical sections, I feel that my ability to help my patient is enhanced with horizontal sections. That's my view. The literature supports that a little bit, not entirely, and we'll look at that in a minute. It's important to keep in mind that some centers, some dermatopathology centers, pathology institutes, don't have the skills yet to process biopsies with horizontal sectioning. But many pathology labs still do vertical sections. And so some labs say, no, we don't do horizontal sections. We don't believe in it. Well, sometimes you don't believe in it because you don't know how to do it. But sometimes you don't believe in it because you don't believe in it. You truly feel that vertical sectioning is better. But we have to remember that some labs just don't know how to process horizontal sections. Some pathologists are more comfortable reading biopsies with vertical sectioning. That's how they're trained. If you give them a biopsy with horizontal sectioning, they can, they can interpret it, of course. They, they know how to read slides, but they're not really used to counting the diameter of hair follicles. They're not used to counting follicles in a biopsy. And so that pathologist is more comfortable reading vertical slides. Before we leave this subject, I think it's important for us to all know about a very nice study in the European Journal of Dermatology from 2016. That's by Dew and colleagues. The title, Diagnostic Value of Horizontal versus Vertical Sections for Scarring and Non-Scarring Alopecia. Colon, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So that's the beauty of this study. It's a systematic review and meta-analysis. They took all the studies in the literature and said, let's see what everybody says about this and pool all the data together. The study by Dew and colleagues in 2016 did not find any statistically significant difference in the accuracy of horizontal and vertical sections. So for non-scarring alopecia, there were eight studies that used horizontal sections. There was eight studies that used vertical sections. The diagnostic accuracy rates was 81% in uh, compared to 76%. No statistical significant difference. For scarring alopecia, there were three studies looking at the use of horizontal sections, five looking at the use of vertical sections. The pooled diagnostic accuracy was 86% versus 90%. No statistically significant difference. Overall, the authors of the meta-analysis from 2016 felt that there doesn't seem to be any significant difference between vertical and horizontal sections for the diagnosis of alopecia. So I really like this study. I think there's still ongoing debate, and some dermatopathologists around the world, whom I respect tremendously, share different views. And some expert dermatopathologists say, give me whatever slide you want, I can go to it and figure it out. I think there is some utility in horizontal sections for non-scarring alopecias. There's a lot more information that can come from it. And in dealing with really challenging cases of chronic telogen effluvium, really challenging cases of diffuse alopecia areata, in dealing with subtle early onset androgenetic hair loss, where a patient is shedding, 27-year-old female, shedding, shedding, shedding. Clinic one says it's telogen effluvium. Clinic two says it's telogen effluvium. Clinic three says it's telogen effluvium. There's no miniaturization on, on your scalp. You do a biopsy, you find the terminal to vellus ratio is 3.2 to 1. 
Guess what? That's androgenetic hair loss. Guess what? You wouldn't have seen that on vertical sectioning. Guess what? You've diagnosed it on horizontal sections. Now, there are many factors that are relevant when I send a biopsy off to a lab. The first is the pretest probability of a certain diagnosis. What do I think the diagnosis is before I send it off? How good of a biopsy is it? Is it deep enough? Is it from the right area? And what's the skill of the dermatopathologist? Does he or she enjoy reading pathology? Are we living in a part of the world where the pathologist sees breast biopsies on Monday, colon biopsies on Tuesday, brain biopsies on Thursday, skin on, on Friday? This is an enormous endeavor to have high-level skill across every body system. And so if your hair pathology is being read by a pathologist that reads everything, it sometimes can be a little bit less accurate than a dermatopathologist that reads hair a lot. And I think we have to remember that, that it's not a criticism of our colleagues, it's just a reality that it's hard to be good in all of those readings of the pathology. For scarring alopecia, it's pretty clear in my mind that both horizontal and vertical sections are both very valuable. It does seem that horizontal sections can really help with challenging cases of non-scarring alopecia. In alopecia areata, you can capture more than just peribulbar inflammation. You can see shifts in catagen and telogen hairs. You can see miniaturization. In androgenetic hair loss, as I mentioned, you can really see this change in the terminal levellus hair ratio, which can help me diagnose many cases of early androgenetic hair loss. So we have these vertical sections, we have horizontal sections, we have ongoing debate about which is better. Do remember that many labs do both. Sometimes they take two biopsies, process one horizontal, one vertical, but there is a wonderful technique called the Hovert technique, standing for horizontal and vertical, which was developed in 2011 by Nguyen and colleagues, which is a very nice technique where you take one biopsy and you process it both horizontally and vertically to get information from both methods. So we move on now to a very nice study looking at urticaria or hives following laser hair removal. It's a side effect that's not talked about a lot and I think it's important that as a hair loss community we understand this phenomenon a little better. The goal of laser hair removal, of course, is to destroy hair follicles without harming surrounding tissue, without getting pigmentation, without getting inflammation to the best of our ability. And the side effects of laser hair removal include burns, pigmentation changes, paradoxical hypertrichosis, which we talked about earlier on in the Evidence-Based Hair podcast this year. Some patients get more hair. Scarring and redness. But persistent hives as a side effect of laser hair removal is not something that is generally discussed with patients as part of the standard counseling and the standard informed consent. So a nice study in 2022 by Dorgeman colleagues describes a patient with hives in the area where laser hair removal was performed. And these were persisting, stubborn, long-lasting hives. And so it was a 30-year-old patient, skin type 3, male patient, who presented for laser hair removal of hair on the chest, abdomen, lower back, and lower posterior neck. His past medical history is significant, and this is really important to this case because he had a history of polyps, environmental allergies, and dermatographism. Dermatographism, this phenomenon whereby you stroke the skin and you get a hive. Many people have dermatographism. His daily medications included many anti-allergy medications, fexofenadine, levocetirazine, montelukast, nasal sprays, and periodic oral prednisone for sinus polyps and flares in the allergy. So he had a number of laser treatments, and his course is very interesting, and that's why I'd like to describe it to you. His first laser treatment was with a 755 nanometer alexandrite laser, a gentle max laser, 
was 16 joules per centimeter squared. After the session, he immediately had itching in the treated areas, and then three to four hours, he had a severe itchy eruption all across the treated areas, and this persisted for about five or six days. The reaction was localized to the skin. He didn't have any anaphylaxis symptoms like shortness of breath. He didn't have any relief with topical steroids, diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl, in addition to his regular allergy protocol. After a few months, he returned for laser session treatment too. At this time, he was pre-treated with prednisone, 40 milligrams. He again had the 755 nanometer alexandrite laser. Instead of 16 joules per centimeter squared, he had 10 joules per centimeter squared and again developed these hives. Three to four hours after, similar to the first session, it lasted five days. He was treated with a prednisone taper, fexofenadine, levocetirazine, diphenhydramine, topical betamethasone, but again, no relief. He came back for laser treatment session number three. Six weeks later, he had started dupilumab for sinus polyps. Remember, this individual has a significant allergy-type history, and he has nasal polyps. Dupilumab, also known as Dupixent, is FDA-approved for sinus polyps. This time, the alexandrite laser was used, but 9 joules per centimeter squared. He was given three days of prednisone and topical betamethasone, and now his symptoms did develop three to four hours after the treatment, but the duration of the intensity decreased to two days instead of five to six days. Five weeks later, he came back for his fourth treatment. He had been on dupilumab for nine weeks. He was pre-treated with prednisone 40 milligrams for two days. The alexandrite laser was administered with nine joules per centimeter squared again. He had similar symptoms for about 36 to 48 hours, but significantly less discomfort. So a really interesting case of this persisting hives after laser hair removal with a 755 nanometer alexandrite laser. Redness of the skin is common after laser hair removal, but it generally is short in duration. This patient had a rare reaction of hives and intense itching within three to four hours, lasting five to six days. And I think this kind of hive-like reaction is not something that is seen often and not something that is generally counseled to patients when informed consent is obtained. I think for all those individuals who do laser hair removal, I think it's interesting to reflect on your own practice if this is perhaps more common than we realize. Landa and colleagues published a nice paper in 2012 of 36 patients with hives after laser and 33 of those 36 patients had a history of allergies, and many of those had a history of dust mite allergies. Now, the cause of this patient's hives in this case is really not clear. The authors considered various forms of physical urticaria, like dermatographism, delayed pressure urticaria, exercise urticaria, cold urticaria, heat urticaria, but he didn't really seem to fit perfectly with any of these. He had no prior history of cold urticaria, which can sometimes happen with the cryogen used to cool the skin with laser hair removal. He did have a history of dermatographism, but his hives resolved within a few hours in his classical pattern of dermatographism. Here, the hives lasted five to six days. So a rare side effect of laser hair removal. How common is it out there in the real world? Not clear. But the suggestion here and the value of this paper is that perhaps patients with moderate to severe environmental allergies might be the group of patients that have this hive-like reaction after laser hair removal. Whether this occurs in one in a thousand people, one in 100,000 people really isn't clear, but I think it's an area for further study. From hives after laser hair removal, we turn to repigmentation from a drug. When drugs cause repigmentation, they often create a lot of buzz. We don't understand fully the biological mechanisms that lead to repigmentation. And it's a huge interest in the cosmetic field. How do we repigment hair in the year 2022? Hair dyes. And so the cosmetic industry is really fascinated to figure out if there are mechanisms that are readily available to repigment hair. 
And so when drugs repigment hair, it usually gets a lot of attention. And this study in the New England Journal certainly did, titled Hair Repigmentation Induced by Nilotinib. Nilotinib is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. We talked about nilotinib in Season 1, Episode 3, because of its ability to induce lichen planopilaris in a very small percent of patients, as we think now, but that's where we talked about it many, many months ago. Nilotinib is FDA-approved for treating chronic myeloid leukemia. This is a type of a cancer of the blood and bone marrow. About 9,000 people every year in the U.S. are diagnosed with CML, and it's characterized by having this specific translocation of genetic material between chromosome 9 and 22, and that leads to this BCR-able fusion oncogene. And it's treatment with tyrosine kinase inhibitors that has become the mainstay of treatment of CML. Imatinib was approved in 2001, nilotinib in 2007, dasatinib in 2017. And so these tyrosine kinase inhibitors are an important part of oncology. And we've discussed in prior episodes that there's this hair follicle side effect of a folliculitis, keratosis pilaris, LPP, lichen planopilaris, scarring alopecia, in some patients on nilotinib. But here we have another side effect, nilotinib causing repigmentation. So a nice study in the New England Journal describes hair pigmentation with the tyrosine kinase inhibitor nilotinib. The patient was a 51-year-old male with CML whose only change was the introduction of nilotinib 18 months prior. It's not clear how this comes about, but it's thought that the inhibition of this kinase or another kinase, many of these drugs inhibit multiple kinases, not only the BCR-able fusion oncogene, but something stimulating melanocytes to produce pigmentation. So we move on now to talk about seborrheic dermatitis, two studies of seborrheic dermatitis, but we begin first with an absolutely fascinating study, the first of its kind, which needs further independent study to validate it. That's how we do science. We perform studies again by other groups, other parts of the world to validate it. But an incredible study that suggests that seborrheic dermatitis is associated with osteoporosis in manners that we never thought before. So a potential shift in the way we think about seborrheic dermatitis. Osteoporosis is a bone disease whereby there's an increased risk of fragility and fractures. And the 1996 World Health Organization definition highlights four components to osteoporosis. Low bone mass, a microarchitectural deterioration, increased fragility as a result of the low, bo the low bone mass and the deterioration in the architecture of bone, and a susceptibility to fractures. And we know that osteoporosis often has this bone mineral density assessment whereby osteoporosis is defined as a bone mineral density that lies 2.5 standard deviations below the average value for young healthy women. That's the T-score. There are many risk factors to develop osteoporosis. Being female is one of them. But we divide the risk factors into modifiable and non-modifiable. The modifiable are the ones we can change, we can do something about. And that includes very low body weight. Patients that are very thin have an increased risk of osteoporosis. Smoking, alcohol consumption, lack of exercise, lack of calcium, long-term steroid use, prednisone, can increase the risk of osteoporosis. These are modifiable. The non-modifiable includes gender, age, race, and certain genetic characteristics. For example, we know osteoporosis is more common in women, and it's more common with age. How common is osteoporosis? Well, a nice study by Solari and colleagues last year published a systematic review and meta-analysis, and they proposed that the prevalence of osteoporosis in the world is probably around 18.3%, and that's from 86 studies across five continents. The sample size in that study was 103 million people, ranging in age from 15 to 105. Subgroup analysis showed that the prevalence of osteoporosis was around 23% in women, 11.7% in men. 
Now, what about seborrheic dermatitis? I'm highlighting this study because of the potential relationship between seborrheic dermatitis and osteoporosis. So let's talk about seborrheic dermatitis and then we'll come back to this fascinating link. Seborrheic dermatitis is a cousin of dandruff. Seborrheic dermatitis affects about 5% of the world. Dandruff affects up to 50% of the world. But seborrheic dermatitis is thought to be multifactorial due to malassezia yeast that somehow is involved in the condition. But there's changes in the skin microbiome, including changes in bacteria. Environmental factors are well known to play a role in seborrheic dermatitis. It's most common on sites of the chest, axilla, back, groin, scalp, face. These are the seborrheic areas that are rich in oil glands. The malassezia need to live in oil-rich areas to survive. And the incidence of seborrheic dermatitis is highest in infants, where we liken it to cradle cap, the form of cradle cap, and adolescents, and then in adults age 30 to 60. So what are some of the risk factors for seborrheic dermatitis? Well, we have neurologic conditions like Parkinson's disease, tardive dyskinesia, stress, being male, HIV, winter months, depression, sleep deprivation, humidity, certain diets, including Western diets, excess alcohol, darker skin types increase the risk for seborrheic dermatitis, altitude, some medications, lymphoma, and, and some immunosuppressed states, HIV, can all increase the risk for seborrheic dermatitis. So is seborrheic dermatitis a risk factor for osteoporosis? Well, authors from Taiwan set out to look at whether patients with seborrheic dermatitis have an increased risk for osteoporosis. They state in their paper that they became interested in this because osteoporosis and seborrheic dermatitis share a similar pathobiology, namely, it's an inflammatory condition that's affected by hormones. So Liu and colleagues set out to investigate the relationship between seborrheic dermatitis and osteoporosis in a large database known as the Taiwan National Health Insurance Research Database, a huge computer system where patients' medical conditions are coded, and you can look up how many people have seborrheic dermatitis, how many people have osteoporosis, and get a lot of information. So the authors compared the risk of osteoporosis in patients with seborrheic dermatitis to the risk of osteoporosis in patients without seborrheic dermatitis. The study group included 7,831 patients with seborrheic dermatitis, age 18 to 50, and the control group included 31,000 patients without seborrheic dermatitis. And patients were matched in this study in a one-to-four matching protocol according to age, gender, uh, comorbidity of medical diseases. Compared to the non-seborrheic dermatitis group, Patients with seborrheic dermatitis had a higher chance of diabetes, a higher chance of high cholesterol and high lipids, high blood pressure, chronic liver disease, hyperthyroidism, depression, dementia, strokes, and psoriasis. So these were all increased in patients with seborrheic dermatitis. But patients with seborrheic dermatitis had an increased risk of osteoporosis. 0.98% of patients with seborrheic dermatitis overall had osteoporosis, and this was 0.66% in the non-seborrheic dermatitis group. And overall, this translated into a 5.95-fold increased risk, an almost six-fold increased risk of osteoporosis in patients with seborrheic dermatitis compared to those without seborrheic dermatitis after adjusting for various factors. And although patients with seborrheic dermatitis had an increased risk of osteoporosis, what was fascinating in this study is that the risk was found to be greatest in female patients of younger age groups. And let me walk you through what this means. Older patients with seborrheic dermatitis were more likely to have osteoporosis than younger patients with seborrheic dermatitis. That makes sense. And older patients with seborrheic dermatitis were more likely to have osteoporosis than older patients without seborrheic dermatitis. But younger patients with seborrheic dermatitis 
in their 30s and 40s were much more likely to have osteoporosis than patients in their 30s and 40s without seborrheic dermatitis. Individuals 30 to 40 years of age had an almost tenfold increased risk of having osteoporosis. In other age groups, it was around six to seven fold increased risk. This relationship between seborrheic dermatitis and osteoporosis is particularly relevant for some of our younger patients in a manner that we really wouldn't have thought about in the past. And additionally, patients with seborrheic dermatitis tended to develop osteoporosis more rapidly two years after enrollment compared to nine years in the control group. So having seborrheic dermatitis was associated with a more rapid onset form of osteoporosis. So this is the first study to demonstrate this significant increased risk of osteoporosis. Patients with seborrheic dermatitis who had hyperlipidemia, hyperthyroidism, or epilepsy were the most likely to have osteoporosis. And it's a particularly interesting study to note the risk occurring in patients of younger age groups. A lot of unanswered questions in that study. What exactly are the associations? Does treating seborrheic dermatitis impact this in any way? Are these factors happening in parallel? The authors point out in their database that in their computer system, they weren't able to control for all of the factors that we know are relevant, controlling for smoking and stress and alcohol and altitude. Some factors couldn't be controlled for in the database simply because the information is not there. But the first of its kind suggests this relationship. What good science and good medicine is all about is fueling the world to consider a second study to reproduce this data for us to really know how significant these findings are. But I think this is a wonderful study, and I commend the authors for it. So we move on now to another study of seborrheic dermatitis, this time a study by Tomic and colleagues from Croatia, titled Seborrheic Dermatitis is Related to Motor Symptoms in Parkinson's Disease, published in November 2022 in the Journal of Clinical Neurology. So we know that seborrheic dermatitis is increased in prevalence in those with Parkinson's disease. In fact, many neurological conditions have an increased risk of seborrheic dermatitis, not only Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, tardive dyskinesia, strokes, dementia. These all can be associated with an increased risk of seborrheic dermatitis. The prevalence of seborrheic dermatitis in the general population is around 3 to 5%. In Parkinson's disease, it's around 20 to 60%, depending on the study. So how do we diagnose Parkinson's disease? Well, there's no single test yet that allows one to diagnose Parkinson's disease. It's a constellation of findings that you get from the history and the physical examination. So features like tremor, the so-called pill-rolling tremor, muscle rigidity, slowed movement, which, called, which is called bradykinesia, poor balance, falls, sleep changes, changes in writing, so-called micrographia with smaller and smaller handwriting, changes in automatic functions like blinking and smiling and swinging the arms when you walk, helps the neurologist diagnose Parkinson's disease. And the symptoms of Parkinson's disease can be divided into motor and non-motor symptoms. And Patients with Parkinson's disease present with numerous motor and non-motor symptoms. The motor symptoms include the muscle rigidity, the tremor, the slowness of movement, which can change balance, precipitate falls, the muscle cramps, the dystonia. So these are the motor symptoms. The non-motor symptoms includes pain, fatigue, low blood pressure, restless legs, problems with the bowel and bladder function. Sweating issues, insomnia, difficulty eating, difficulty with dentition, difficulty with saliva, issues with speech and communication, difficulty with foot care, eye movements. Those are the non-motor function. So Tomic and colleagues from Croatia published a very nice study looking at do these motor and non-motor functions predict seborrheic dermatitis? How are they related to seborrheic dermatitis? 
So the authors set out to determine how motor and non-motor symptoms influence the severity of seborrheic dermatitis in patients with Parkinson's disease. And they used a variety of standard rating scales to evaluate motor function and non-motor function. And dermatologists evaluated seborrheic dermatitis. So there were 61 patients in the study, 31 ma 39 males, 22 females, and seborrheic dermatitis was present in 36% of patients in this study. Remember, seborrheic dermatitis in the general population is around 3%, 5%, here 36%. In keeping with other studies of this significantly increased risk of seborrheic dermatitis and Parkinson's disease. So the authors found positive correlations between age, motor symptom severity, and seborrheic dermatitis. 50% of patients with moderate to severe motor symptoms developed seborrheic dermatitis, compared to just 28% of those with mild motor symptoms. And after adjusting for age, disease duration, and sex, there remained a positive correlation between the severity of motor symptoms, the rigidity, the tremor, and seborrheic dermatitis. And so overall, patients with moderate to severe motor symptoms had more severe seborrheic dermatitis. And the risk of developing seborrheic dermatitis was almost twofold higher in those with moderate to severe motor symptoms compared to those with less severe motor symptoms. There was no correlation between seborrheic dermatitis and autonomic dysfunction, sleep disturbance, or the other non-motor symptoms, and no difference according to gender. So I think this is a really important study which highlights the importance of the motor symptoms, especially moderate to severe motor symptoms and the development of seborrheic dermatitis. The authors wanted to know if the diagnosis of seborrheic dermatitis prior to Parkinson's disease could influence the clinical presentation of Parkinson's disease when it occurs. One-third of patients in this study had symptoms of seborrheic dermatitis before being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, but the authors did not find that prior seborrheic dermatitis influenced the severity of motor symptoms. And so the authors felt that this overall supported their theory that motor symptoms are more closely linked to the eventual development of seborrheic dermatitis and the clinical presentation of seborrheic dermatitis rather than seborrheic dermatitis influencing motor symptoms. And the authors found that patients with moderate to severe motor symptoms had more severe seborrheic dermatitis. So, a very interesting study. The conclusions here are that one-third of patients with Parkinson's disease had seborrheic dermatitis in this study. After adjusting for age, disease duration, and sex, the authors found a positive correlation between motor symptoms and seborrheic dermatitis, with a 1.8-fold increased risk of developing seborrheic dermatitis in those with moderate to severe motor symptoms. Patients with moderate to severe motor symptoms have more severe seborrheic dermatitis and no correlation with the non-motor symptoms. An interesting study which advances our understanding of some of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease and how they relate to seborrheic dermatitis. And finally, we highlight a study of finasteride and how finasteride might improve survival in patients with bladder cancer a study published in October of clinical and genitourinary cancer. According to cancer.org, about 1 in 27 males will develop bladder cancer in their lifetime, and there's a higher risk in males than in females, where the risk in females is around 1 in 89. And if we exclude non-melanoma skin cancer, bladder cancer is, in some studies, the fourth most common cancer in males. It's been theorized that androgens, male hormones, have some impact on how bladder cancer comes about and how it transforms. And so not surprisingly, then, a lot of research has looked at whether anti-androgens can impact, impact bladder cancer. And so a new study by Garge and colleagues 
looked at survival of males with bladder cancer who use finasteride compared to the survival of males who don't use finasteride. A unique study with a unique design, so I'd like, you, like to walk you through it. The authors included men that began taking finasteride after their diagnosis of bladder cancer, and men taking finasteride before the diagnosis were excluded. We don't know the dose of finasteride, but presumably it's five milligrams rather than one that we use for hair loss, because this was a study of in the urologic literature where males are often using five milligrams of finasteride for prostatic hypertrophy or enlargement of the prostate gland. Patients were from the South Texas Veterans Healthcare System. There was 1,890 patients in this study. 32% of participants were using finasteride, 67% were controls, and they did not use finasteride. After a median follow-up of 53 months, death due to any cause was noted in 44% of finasteride users and 49% of controls, and this was statistically significant. The patients in the finasteride group had better overall survival compared to patients that were not using finasteride, and that was for all types of bladder cancer as well as the non-muscle invasive bladder cohort, a subtype of bladder cancer, one of the more common types. So overall, the use of finasteride was independently associated with overall survival in bladder cancer. And so the authors conclude in this study that finasteride use is associated with an improved overall survival in patients with bladder cancer. And they feel that this study should fuel additional studies, especially randomized controlled trials, of the use of finasteride in patients diagnosed with bladder cancer. So that's it for this week. I want to thank you for joining me for this episode of Evidence-Based Hair. We talked about iron pill gastritis and the fact that iron tablets can sometimes cause significant inflammation, erosions likened to a burn in the stomach. And iron supplementation is still very important for our patients with low iron, but we have to be aware that when patients report abdominal pain, cramping, we have to take it seriously. It may not just be that it's a short-term side effect. We need to pay attention to it and be aware that even healthy volunteers can develop significant stomach issues after very short duration on iron pills. We talked about horizontal and vertical sectioning. It was Dr. Headington that changed the field dramatically with the introduction of horizontal sections to our field, and we are forever indebted to that change. What's better? Well, the debate is out there, and one could debate ongoing, but they're somewhat similar for an expert pathologist. Perhaps, just perhaps, there's some increased utility of horizontal sections in non-scarring alopecia, especially the diagnosis of early androgenetic hair loss and very challenging cases of alopecia areata, and I feel some cases of chronic telogen effluvium where the terminal levellus hair ratio above 8 to 1 can give you some clues that this may be chronic telogen effluvium. We talked about an interesting study of hives lasting 5 and 6 days after laser hair reduction with the 755 nanometer alexandrite laser. How common is this? Well, I think we need more studies, but do reflect on this in your practice if you perform laser hair removal. We talked about an interesting study in the New England Journal of hair repigmentation in a patient who started nilotinib for CML. An absolutely incredible study highlighting the association between seborrheic dermatitis and osteoporosis. Patients with seborrheic dermatitis may have a six-fold increased risk of osteoporosis. And what was particularly important in this study is the fact that young patients with seborrheic dermatitis may be at significantly increased risk compared to their peers and friends of similar age. We need more studies in this area, but a fascinating study, which gets us going to think about these issues. And then we talked about the association between seborrheic dermatitis and Parkinson's disease. 
in this particular study, patients with significant motor symptoms, tremors, rigidity, were more likely to have more severe seborrheic dermatitis. And finally, a study by Garge and colleagues outlining the potential for finasteride to improve survival in bladder cancer. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you again for joining me for this and all of the episodes of Evidence-Based Hair. I appreciate your comments. I appreciate your interest. And I do hope that these studies that I review each week are making an impact on your practice in some way or making an impact on how you think about this incredible field of hair loss medicine. I'll look forward to seeing you next week. It'll be the first Monday of the month of December and we'll be talking about studies in androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. And I'll look forward to seeing you then for the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast.